Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it's been at least a good four days since I was on the air last with all of you, my fellow listeners, and I'm sure many of you all were wondering, when is Kirk Monroe going to get back on the air next? Well, I've answered that uh, problem, or rather question for you all. I'm back on the air again with another episode to uh, Mary Elise Antoine's uh, book, the War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chien. I've said before, and I can <clears throat> say again, that life doesn't always revolve around one thing you enjoy doing, whether it's podcasting or traveling. But at the same time, there are other things that um, you should um, enjoy with your life as well. And, uh, for example, my wife and I went uh, to an oyster and wine festival back on Sunday at a winery not far from where we live. And, uh, and matter of fact, we're wine club members at, so uh, that was w very well worth uh, the time spent. And then I got to uh, visit a good buddy of mine from uh, college who doesn't live too far from the winery and uh, got to meet his uh, girlfriend. And uh, we, had, we had a great time. So all in all, uh, to sum it up in a nutshell... Yes, as much as I enjoy podcasting, I have to remind myself that life doesn't revolve around just podcasting alone. After all, if it did, um, one could probably say that um, life itself would probably get dull and boring if that's all you did. And they probably would be right about that. But uh, what we're going to be discussing in this uh, podcast episode is about uh, Tecumseh's Rebellion and the Declaration of War. Now, many of you all probably don't know who Tecumseh is, but I will tell you all about Tecumseh here um, before you all know it. But before we can get to Tecumseh, we've got to um, we've got to uh, retouch on a few things going into this uh, episode from where we left off from the previous uh, podcast um, episode or segment, I should say. At the end of the last segment, uh, we did, we talked about um, how there was um, uncertainty looming on the western frontiers. And what I meant by that uncertainty was uh, the Indian nations wondering how whether or not it, it's going to be a reality that the United States and Britain could go to war. And before even the thought of war coming into their minds, you know, for many of these uh, traders along the frontier, they have uh, endured a setback. As a matter of fact, uh, that setback I did mention briefly about was the Embargo Act of 1807. And how ironic that we will talk about this here momentarily again, because we do need to understand the... Um, the time frame that we're in now between 1811 and going into 1812, we need to understand how we get to this point. Because remember, war itself just doesn't happen overnight. War itself is, is really something that brews over time. It could be a conflict that's been in the making for years. And what I mean by years is maybe 10 years or more. It's fair to say that what's going along on the western frontiers has been a conflict, or rather a conflict of interest, since the end of the American Revolution. So, um, our first lead-off uh, question for this um, episode uh, to the War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chien, is the following. 
were France and Britain, a.k.a. England, once again in a state of warfare after President Thomas Jefferson's administration acquired territory from the Louisiana Purchase. That is, you know, the Louisiana Territory that doubles the size of the United States. Were France and Britain once again in a state of war? Uh, the answer is yes. Both nations intended to damage one another's commerce by capturing ships of neutral nations whom carried their opponent's trade. So, okay, you know, France and England, you know, France has ceded the territory to the United States. But that doesn't mean that France and the United States are, are on friendly terms. It doesn't mean that they're living happily ever after. What it means is that France has still got a thorn in its side to deal with, being England. And, you know, here the United States, about, oh, ten years earlier in 1793, you know, between 18, 1793 1803, that's ten years. But 1793, the United States declares its uh, neutrality in the uh, conflict that was going on between England and France. The United States still likes to think of itself as a neutral nation. However, it's one thing to declare your neutrality, but does it automatically mean that you're safe on the high seas? And what I mean by being safe on the high seas, that is being safe on the ocean's waters going across the Atlantic into uh, Europe uh, to uh, trade, you know, to exchange your goods. No, it doesn't. And, you know, we're, and, you know, even in the 19th century, we're dealing with piracy. That is, um, you know, rogue nations whom are um, harassing um, other countries in their uh, cargoes to the point where they're not only taking the cargo illegally, they are capturing sailors and holding them hostage. Early on in Thomas Jefferson's administration, he dealt with what were called the Barbary Wars in uh, dealing with uh, Tripoli in uh, North Africa, where many of our sailors were being captured and held for ransom. You know, this, this is not a, a pleasant period of time, folks. It's not a safe period at all. You know, yes, we have, we, you know, 30-some years earlier, you know, we're back in the early 1780s, yes, we did finally declared our independence from England, that is, from from the British surrender at Yorktown to the Treaty of Paris. All of that was great, but as a nation, we still had so much to, um, we, we still had a lot of uh, growing up to do, and I'm not saying that in a bad way, but in order to be a uh, respectable nation, you've got to do other steps, you've got to take other steps, and here the United States here we are after the acquisition of the Louisiana Territory. We really are a third world country still. So, you know, it's one thing, as I said earlier, yes, for our ships to be going overseas to trade with other nations, but that doesn't mean that our um, men are going to come home safely. What do they have to deal with? The worst thing they can be dealing with are British and French vessels harassing them to the point where, given that the United States being the largest neutral nation, ends up being the one that bears the brunt of England and France's ship seizure practices, most notably Britain, 
whom goes about taking American sailors off their ships and forcing them into serving under the British Navy. That is what's called impressment. In other words, capturing or taking someone away from where they currently are, forcing them against their own will to do something that they um, had not requested to do, uh, making them do something that they had not even um, made a wholehearted commitment to. So in other words, the British are searching our ships without any probable cause. I, I think of this as a violation of search and seizure. Um, you know, the British didn't have any, you know, what evidence would they have had to suspect that, that our ships were doing something that they didn't like? Well, the bottom line is we're a neutral nation. They don't like the fact that neutral nations are on the high seas, most notably the United States. And, you know, the, Brit the British are still bearing scars from the American Revolution. Um, and so they feel that the best way to get back at the United States is to basically engage in an acts of impressment, a.k.a. intimidation, to where they are um, capturing our vessels and not just only taking the cargo, but they are taking the sailors and forcing them against their own will to fight on the side of the British, because the British pretty much claim that they are in such desperate shortage of sailors that they don't know where else to turn to, to fill the missing voids, other than to impress the American sailors into their, into their, um, into their own Navy, into their, into the opposition being the British Navy. So, 1807, you know, Thomas Jefferson's president, He's getting fed up with the impressment on the high seas. And why not? Who wouldn't be fed up with this? And yes, Congress is too. However, it's one thing to pass a law, but does the law benefit everyone in the United States? It may benefit the people who are in favor of it, but it will lose its luster amongst those whom oppose it, not just the politicians whom oppose it, but how about the people who work in professions that are dependent upon the uh, dependent upon um, the ships coming in and out of their harbors? Okay, so when Thomas Jefferson signs the Embargo Act of 1807 into law, the legislation itself is intended to cut off all trade with France and England because of the um, improper practices on the high seas, such as the harassing of our vessels to the capturing of, of um, American sailors uh, via means of impressment. Jefferson is hoping, along with the, um, along with the Democratic Republican, or a.k.a. Jeffersonian Republican Congress, that, that this will uh, bring uh, French and um, British ships to a halt. In other words, he's convinced that it will destroy their economies, and he is hoping in return that Americans will become more independent. That is, they won't become dependent upon British manufactured goods. They will be uh, less dependent upon other nations for survival. The problem is that we're the other thing is that we're relying on all the the goods from England and France to coming into the United States as a means of um, not just uh, for economical reasons, but also for uh, tariff purposes, because 
all of our uh, tax revenue is coming from the tariffs um, and other uh, means of uh, imports and uh, excise duties. So in other words, without that revenue, our economy really can't stay afloat. But because of the Embargo Act and Jefferson's envision that, hey, people will find ways to become self-independent and they will be able to, um, you know, ma manufacture more goods at home versus relying on the goods abroad. Well, the problem is that um, thousands of men lose their jobs in New England. The rope makers, the caulkers, the, uh, the shipbuilders, uh, the men who uh, design the masts for the schooners and the uh, brigs, all those men are out of work, folks. They don't benefit from this act. It loses its luster because all of the, not just because of the, the politicians who opposed it, it's because the act itself pretty much cut off all business, that is, the ships coming in and out of ports like Boston, Massachusetts, Newport, Rhode Island, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, New York City, Philadelphia, and maybe as far south as Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia are impacted as well. Probably Baltimore, Maryland is too. So uh, the list goes on and on, but those are just some of the uh, major cities that are impacted by this embargo to the point where... Um, people's livelihoods are destroyed by this. So how did Congress go about making up for the debacle that the Embargo Act brought upon? Well, for starters, come March of 1809, Congress repealed the Embargo Act two years. But just because it repealed the Embargo Act, it didn't mean that the light switch just came back on and everybody went back to uh, normal operations. But uh, for starters, come March of 1809, Congress repeals this Embargo Act and replaces it with the Non-Intercourse Act. The Non-Intercourse Act makes it illegal to import goods from France or England, including the nations whom they were dependent upon. So in other words... The Non-Intercourse Act is going to prohibit all goods from uh, France and England coming into the United States, including any nations um, whom are dependent upon, any other nations whom would be dependent upon those goods. So in other words, if you know President Madison's administration now thinks that, okay, if we don't accept goods that come into us from nations whom trade with France and England, then we will reduce further conflict with other nations. Well, it really doesn't have the, um, the true intent as Madison envisioned for with it being on paper. There again, this act um, won't benefit everybody. The English traders um, were impacted heavily by the Non-Intercourse Act, that is, the English traders along the Western Frontier Territory, how so? Because it barred them from legally bringing goods into the United States territories. The act itself impacted American traders and Indian agents to where they would be unable to offer Indians essential trading goods. Okay, you know, trading goods, you know, the goods themselves that the Indians acquire can be uh, dependent upon the season that that the goods themselves are in need for or in need of. So now that uh, this, this non-intercourse act has gone into effect, 
how are the Indians going to be able to receive the goods coming westward um, into what we now know as the Northwest Territory, given that Ohio is already uh, admitted into the Union? We now have the Illinois Territory. You've got um, you've got still the Indiana Territory. Uh, so basically, you, the more territory we have now, in large part because of this um, of the Louisiana Territory acquisition, that also means that you've got to find there has to be ways to bring goods westward, not only for the American traders and the, in the Indian agents, but also to be able to trade goods with the Indians, uh, so that there can so that with the intent on avoiding um, future uh, conflicts, all in the name of a shortage of goods. So as I've said before, I'd say it again, this is, uh, this is a trying time. Were the Indians, including their tribal chiefs, concerned about the likelihood of war breaking out between England and the United States? Yes. Well, considering that the Non-Intercourse Act restricted Indians' abilities to remain dependent upon the goods which had um, allowed them to maintain ties to the United States. We have to remember, folks, there are a fair number of Indians who, or not just Indians as individuals, but as tribes as a whole, or uh, tribal nations for that matter, whom are um, deeply um, affiliated or aligned with the British, then you've got Indian tribes who maybe aren't deeply aligned just yet with the um, to the Americans, but they are developing or getting a sense of a attachment or a um, some sense of a unity with the Americans because they think that the Americans might be the real deal. So, but then you've got Indian nations who really aren't sure where to go. So, all in the name of uh, restrictions that legislation has, um, that restrictions with newly implemented legislation that has all, all in the name of uh, trade restrictions. So, yes, it's one thing to be able to trade freely, but when trade gets regulated to the point where one party is um, impacted and the other party can't find ways to make up for the uh, deficit, then you have an imperfect balance. And with an imperfect balance brings nothing but uncertainty. And with uncertainty, we don't know what tomorrow brings like, meaning will bring, a.k.a. the future. Nicholas Balvin, and we've mentioned his name quite a bit, uh, being the um, agent for the Upper Mississippi region, he met repeatedly with Indian tribes throughout the summer of 1811, warning them of the dangers behind aligning with the British as fears of war were enhanced. Well, Nicholas, I'll commend Nicholas Balvin for going above and beyond and, and doing everything there was in his power to meet regularly with the Indian tribes, especially warning them of what lied ahead but also trying to um, tell these Indian tribes to stay the course by, by sticking to the side of the United States. You can uh, talk all you want and say, hey, you know, you definitely need to stay with this, um, with this side of the, um, of the conflict and all, or of the soon-to-be conflict, but 
you can talk all you want, but if uh, you can't deliver on promises, that is with goods coming in, then how can you keep the alliance intact, or the alliances, let alone? Robert Dixon, whom was a British trader, and we've mentioned his name uh, through other podcasts, he obtained trading goods and supplies from merchants in Montreal, Canada, where he went about smuggling the goods illegally into Prairie du Chien, where tribes along the upper Mississippi became aligned to Dixon and the British. You know, smuggling goods, you know, in the eyes of many is not a good thing because when you smuggle something in, you're not paying a tax on it. You are bringing it in not just illegally, but you could be selling it at a cheaper price and still making a profit. But is the government getting what it needs to be getting from you revenue-wise? No. So the United States here has um, been gypped in a sense. In other words, here we've tried, pa- here we've passed legislation restricting trade, but yet people are still finding ways to um, to uh, cut um, what do you call it? Cut corners. They are finding ways to um, to get past what we would think of now in today's modern bureaucracy, red tape. So Robert Dixon is a step ahead of Nicholas Balvin. Nicholas Balvin did, yes, he met repeatedly with Indian tribes, but he wasn't able to offer any goods to them, all because of the trade restrictions. Robert Dixon somehow got, um, he got the goods, but he got them in Canada. Of course, Canada and the United States are two separate nations. They do border each other, but he smuggled the goods into the United States illegally without having to pay any customs duties on them. But hey, desperate times call for desperate actions, and this, these these were times of uh, desperation, and you know Robert Dixon came through the clutch, and um, hey, if he came through the clutch, then then more power to him for being able to um, see to it that the uh, tribes along the upper Mississippi not only got the goods they needed, but but uh, their uh, ties to the British as well as to Dixon himself grew even stronger. Uh, what other Indian tribe which wasn't stationed at Prairie du Chien posed a greater problem for concern before and come the fall of 1811? Okay, this Indian tribe, as I said a moment ago, was not stationed at Prairie du Chien. I'll give you some choices. Was it the Delaware? Was it the uh, Powhatan? Was it the Seminole? Was it the Cherokee or the Shawnee? The answer is the Shawnees. The Shawnees were led by a fellow named Tecumseh, whose peoples were impacted by the 1795 Treaty of Greenville, which forced Indian tribes off their lands in what's now eastern and southern Ohio. This treaty sought to end all existing hostilities along the Great Lakes. But most importantly, the treaty alone went about opening the Northwest Territory to white settlers. Tecumseh, who was the Shawnee chief, 
He firmly believed that the lands that had not been previously owned by Indians did not belong to just one tribe, but instead to all tribes from within the region. Could it be fair to say that maybe Tecumseh is like the equivalent of a prophet? Perhaps so. Maybe Tecumseh, in the eyes of, of us, could be seen as the chosen one for the Indian peoples. In other words, he is the chosen one commanding those below him to realize that, hey, land itself isn't all about one or two tribes. The land itself belongs to all of us. In other words, all of the tribes within the region, not just along the Ohio Valley, but throughout the Great Lakes. And it's up to us as a nation, a.k.a. Indian nation, to stand together as one. And we'll get to this here momentarily. Tecumseh personally believed all Indian land transfers to the United States, that is to the United States government, must require every Indian tribe's direct consent. Huh. You know, it's one thing to give consent, but for Tecumseh, all Indian tribes in a region needed to vote unanimously to say, okay, we'll cede the land to the government, but we better, ex but we better expect that the government gives us something back in return. Otherwise, how can there be mutual consent on both ends where each party benefits from something that the other that the other side didn't have previously. So for Tecumseh, maybe we're seeing something of a of a war. In other words, a war that um, in his mind is one about securing the future. That is securing the future of Indian nations along the western frontiers. land transfer, in Tecumseh's eyes, land transfer done opposite, aka separately, yielded little to no Indian power in Tecumseh's eyes. Tecumseh was referred to um, as, as the master, well, the master of life was referred to as the Shawnee's chief of God, aka the owner of lands. Tecumseh wanted the United States government to deal with all tribes versus a select few. For Tecumseh, he sought an independent union. An independent union being one that was totally free of outsiders, white settlers, the United States government. The independent union that Tecumseh wanted was one that where the Indian nations along the western uh, frontiers could govern on their own terms, could make their own laws, could run their own lives without any outside intrusion. And if treaties wanted to be made or agreements, they were to be done by the Indian tribes themselves without, in, without in their eyes a third party, which probably to them would have been seen as the United States government.
Between 1809 and 1810, the tribal nations of the Sac, Fox, Winnebago, and Potawatomi relocated to um, an area or a place that is still in existence today in northern Indiana, not far from the Indiana-Michigan line known as Tippecanoe, located on the Tippecanoe River in present-day Indiana. As a result from the 1804 treaty where land was confiscated due to the Sacks due to the Sac tribe not having proper representation. And what I mean by proper representation is that they didn't have their tribal chiefs present to conduct uh, the proper um, affairs and uh, doesn't make it right that it happened, but it did. So why is Tippy Canoe or Tippecanoe so vital? For starters, it was the largest Native American community throughout the Great Lakes region. However, it served as a primary hub for Indian culture, including the last defensive wall, aka fortified area for protection against white settlers. Did you hear that, folks? Tippecanoe served as a not just as a primary hub for Indian culture, but the last defensive wall. Maybe it was seen as its own version of of the last stand in terms of keeping out the invasive species in the, in the Indians' eyes, the white settlers. After all, when the Euro first Europeans landed uh, or came to America, even before the well before the 19th century, Indian tribes up and down uh, north and south saw. Um, the Europeans, most notably in Virginia with the uh, Powhatan Confederacy, they were viewed as invasive species. In other words, you know, they wanted to come here trying to start a new life, and they were looking for natural resources that were going to bring them, in their eyes, riches in terms of lots of money. But they came away empty-handed, but what they sadly brought was not fortunes, they brought disease. And that's where the term, in their eyes, invasive species came to play. Being outsiders, outsiders who not only didn't probably have a whole lot of knowledge of the area, but being an, uh, an outsider, they were prone to spreading bad things. Not warfare, but disease, which would sadly over time wipe out many um, well-to-do Indian civilizations in North, Central, and uh, South America. But yes, Tippecanoe was viewed as the last defensive wall or fortified area for protection against the white settlers. But, tip, but Tippecanoe also served as a place for members of multiple tribes, which comprised roughly about 3,000 Indians. 3,000 doesn't seem like a lot, but, um, but in my eyes it is. The white people referred to Tippecanoe as Prophet's Town, considering Tecumseh's brother, Tenskwatawa, did you hear that one, folks? Tenskwatawa had founded the village. Tenskwatawa, being Tecumseh's brother, was viewed as the prophet. And there is a, a place in Indiana called Prophet's Town, Indiana, and it's um, located... Um, Somewhere not too terribly far from Indianapolis, 
I want to say it's probably just west of Indianapolis. I know Indianapolis is more in uh, central Indiana. But anyways, yes, white people referred to Tippecanoe as Prophetstown, given that Tecumseh's brother, Tenskwatawa, had founded that village. What takes place on November 7, 1811? William Henry Harrison and nearly 1,000 of his men were attacked by Indian forces on the outskirts of Prophetstown, but they held their ground to where the Indians in the end left their village. The defeat outside Prophetstown forced many of the Indians in the Northwest Territory that they would need to rely on British assistance in deterring white settlers from further land encroachments. So is it fair to say that with the British presence still along the Northwest Territory and, and even a little bit further west into what we now know as uh, present-day Minnesota, um, even somewhere around the Dakotas and around areas of um, what we know as Illinois and maybe parts of Iowa too, is it fair to say that um, the Indian tribes living in those areas are going to become more and more dependent upon the British for assistance in deterring white in, de, in deterring future white uh, settlers from um, from encroaching on um, Indian lands that are already established. The answer is yes. Well, uh, what happened in uh, late December of 1811? Okay. Um, if what happened in November is alarming, is what happened in late December of 1811 perhaps just as alarming? Yes. The Winnebago attacked American traders on the outskirts below Prairie du Chien in retaliation for General Harrison's attack on the Indian village outside Prophetstown a month earlier. Well, how bad was the Winnebago attack? Well, I can tell you this, less than uh, five people died, but still the incident itself was alarming. The Winnebago attack on American traders resulted in the deaths of uh, two traders, but it also included the destruction of all buildings and the residents of, of uh, Prairie du Chien, that is the American traders whom were residing at Prairie du Chien, became greatly concerned that perhaps they could be the next targets. So, you know, William Clark as a territorial governor in, uh, in what we now know as present-day St. Louis, Missouri, he's been made aware now of what has happened not only from what took place outside of, um, just on the outskirts of Prophetstown, um, what we now know as Prophetstown, Indiana, back in uh, November, but he's now just found out what has taken place uh, just uh, just south of Prairie du Chien with the deaths of uh, two American traders. What does William Clark propose that, in his eyes, will help curtail further hostilities between Indians and American traders? He goes about um, proposing the idea of having companies of U.S. Rangers get sent to the Western territories where a line would be drawn 
allowing non-hostile, or what we would call friendly Indians, access. What kind of access, though? How about access to what we know as signals? Okay. So the U.S. Rangers are gonna have, would have to be the ones that would um, would know the signals in advance. But these are not, you know, signals like we think of when making a left or a right turn. These are signals that will tell them, okay, who is an Indian friend, who is an Indian enemy. In other words, which tribes coming through are our friends or are, you know, our part would be our partners or acquaintances, but which ones do we know are the enemies? And maybe some of that can be could have been determined by the uh, clothing of the Indians, or just really simply where Indian alliances stood. But the signals were known only to the U.S. Rangers. But we do know that Indians without a permit or knowledge behind the signals were prohibited from crossing the line. So if the Indians who uh, came about into Western territories where this line would be um, would be visible, the line that would uh, allow or not allow Indi an Indian um, tribe or Indian tribes to come into, if they had their permits, then the um, U.S. Rangers knew that it was safe for them to um, to uh, continue their uh, trek. This is kind of like a what we now know is like maybe modern day version of uh, customs borders. William Clark was aware of uh, British traders smuggling goods to Indian tribes above and below Prairie du Chien. I mean, he knows that this is going on. Of course, even William Clark himself, he doesn't have the complete authority to be able to stop it altogether. But I, I do give him credit for trying to come up with, uh, with ideas to uh, go about reducing the already uh, mounting tension between, um, between U.S. traders and not just the U.S. and the British traders, but really where the r r relations stand amongst the various uh, Indian tribes along the upper Mississippi and uh, western Great Lakes areas. Now, from mid-December of 1811 to mid-January 1812, the weather, or rather I should say Mother Nature, played havoc with all Indian tribes on the upper Mississippi. Well, for starters, a series of earthquakes struck around New Madrid, uh, what we now know as New Madrid, Missouri. And for those of you who need to be reminded where New Madrid, Missouri is located, it's uh, right on the um, Missouri-Kentucky line. And the major city, I wouldn't say it's a major city, but I'd say maybe now like a regional city in Kentucky where that's close to New Madrid is uh, Paducah, which is uh, west, well west of Lexington and Louisville and west of, uh, well west of, of um, Kentucky's uh, capital being uh, Frankfurt. But uh, Paducah, though, is not too located too terribly far from um, Owensboro, uh, which is right on the Kentucky-Indiana line. So, uh, anyways, yes, the first of these um, series of earthquakes strikes around uh, New Madrid, or what we know as New, Ma New Madrid, Missouri, around the middle of um, December 1811. 
but in the month after January 1812, the rivers like the Ohio and the Mississippi froze to the point where where any goods were uh, pretty much the flow of goods came to a halt in large part because those rivers froze and it pretty much um, prevented those goods from getting through to St. Louis, resulting in a greater presence of Indian men and women coming to Prairie du Chien and trying to obtain those essential goods and supplies. So yes, uh, during the winter season, yes, you could have trading going on, but when the waters freeze, how can any um, boats, how can any um, you know canoes, or maybe what we might think of as bateau boats, uh, make their way up, up and down the uh, Mississippi River. How can they make their way through anybody, any body of water, for that matter? It, it's just not possible. So now that we have more Indians, um, most notably Indian men and women, coming to Prairie du Chien, then you've got. Now we have to start thinking to ourselves: What about supply and demand? Are are we going to have any? Um, shortages of supply and demand, knowing that more Indians are coming their way uh, for trading purposes. So the aftermath of the uh, November battle incident around Prophetstown led Nicholas Boisvin to meet regularly with Indian chiefs from major, from major tribes like the Sioux, the Winnebago, Sac, Fox, to discuss in the Menominee to discuss what was to happen if war broke out between the U.S. and Britain. You know, here again, I applaud Nicholas Baldwin for for doing what he's doing. I mean, he's got to do something to to keep the peace on his end. But the problem is that he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. The legislation that Congress has passed has now made it even harder for the United States to be able to obtain imported goods that would be coming in from France and England, as well as goods of any other nation whom are dealing directly with France and England. So basically, Nicholas Baldwin is in a rock and a hard place because he's got nothing that he can give to the Indians that will um, secure a long-term alliance. Yeah, he can talk all he wants, but if he doesn't have anything that he can give in return to make up for a deficit or just to make up for any kind of um, existing shortages, then he really is um, in a bad place. But it's not, but it, sadly, that's something that he has no control over. It's the government right now that maybe, in my opinion, is shooting itself in the foot. Was British Indian trader Robert Dixon aware of Nicholas Baldwin's meetings with primary Indian tribes who came regularly to Prairie du Chien for trading purposes? Yes. As a matter of fact, he witnessed all the comings and goings of Indian chiefs, considering his station was located next door. We have to remember, folks, you know, at Prairie du Chien, we have the British trading, um, we have the what you call like, like the equivalent of maybe modern day, modern day embassies. We have a, a, the main British house and the American house with their flags above, it, you know, as a sign of which countries are um, the leading countries in the region, whom are doing business with the um, Indians that um, 
that live in the region. So yes, Nicholas, I mean, um, Robert Dixon is aware of all the comings and goings of the uh, Indian tribes whom Walvin is speaking to with. Now, come the summer of 1812, especially by June of that year, um, both uh, Nicholas Walvin and Robert Dixon have left Prairie du Chien. Walvin left in June and was accompanied by a handful of chiefs from the Sioux, Iowa, and Winnebago nations. A month earlier in May of that year, William Clark has left St. Louis with Indian chiefs from Great and Little Osage, Shawnee, and Delaware. Now, just to let you know, folks, there is a place in Ohio called Delaware, Ohio, outside of Columbus, and that's named after uh, the Delaware Indian Nation. There is Osage, Iowa, which is after the Osage uh, Nation. So, okay, if Walvin has left, and so has William Clark, where do you think they could be going? Well, I can tell you this much. They're not taking a vacation anywhere, but they are going somewhere for official business, and that's why they're bringing these... Indian tribes along with them to um, to persuade, you know, perhaps to persuade government um, leaders above that, hey, these are Indian peoples whom are interested on being, whom are interested in being on our side. Where had Nicholas Boalvin and his Indian delegation arrived when learning the United States officially declared war on England? Well, um, were they in uh, what we were they in Ohio? The answer is yes. Whereabouts, though, in Ohio? Just out of curiosity. I know to some of you it may not really make a difference, but I find it actually kind of interesting where they were. Um, okay, you know they left um, at the start of June, and now they are. Um, they are th that is, they left Saint. Um, they left Prairie du Chien, but they are now uh, in Ohio. They are in Cincinnati, southern Ohio, southwest Ohio. So that's uh, quite a journey so far. Now, June 18, 1812 is the exact date where President James Madison signs the official declaration of war. There were, obviously there are reasons behind going to war. James Madison, like Tom, his predecessor Thomas Jefferson, were fed up with the hostile trade relations between the United States and England, including France, but more so between the United States and England. And these hostile trade relations were seen as a major issue behind why President Madison felt it was necessary in going, in going to war, including the British presence. Their presence, or let alone their activities along the Western territories. You know, it's one thing to declare war on another nation. The bigger question, though, or problem for James Madison is that he doesn't have the best army. He is going to rely on the militia. He believes that the militia can take care of this problem. He's under <laughs> this political philosophy that standing armies are a problem. Even in times of peace, standing armies pose a threat to the greater public. But at the same time, don't you need a, a well-maintained army to go head-to-toe with an enemy whom, regardless of the nation overseas that's in your country still, you need a, a well-maintained army. Otherwise, if you don't, 
then how are they going to be able to go head to toe with a formidable foe like England? Because this war that will soon commence will not only be, it won't just be a, a, what we know as the War of 1812, it will become America's second war for independence. And the reason why it will be America's second war for independence, it's because America is still trying to fight for her freedom, that is, her independence on the high seas, that is, her independence where she will no longer be subjected to impressment, where she will be no longer subjected to having her men be captured against their own will, where America will no longer be viewed as a stepsister or the stepchild to the nations above. She will no longer be inferior. She can sail freely without any um, fears of being uh, taken prisoner. So, you know, it's, there again, it's one thing to declare war, but James Madison, the problem for James Madison, though, one of the, one of the things he's going to have a problem with is being able to fortify Washington. Washington is a wilderness at this time, folks, but just because it's a wilderness, it doesn't mean that the enemy can strike when it's least expected. Where does where will Madison send most of his forces to start this war out to start this war? He'll send forces to Canada. He wants to liberate the people of Canada because he doesn't like the fact that the British are um, are in Canada, but knowing that Canada is right on on the border, you know, north of the border, and the Canadians still have influence with Indians along the border as well. So. For Madison, he wants to rid the British out of Canada. It's one thing to do that, but here we go again, folks. If you don't, if you cannot find ways to fortify your capital or let alone coastal cities well south of Canada, how about cities like like Philadelphia, maybe Boston, New York? Who knows where the British Navy will strike? So. For President Madison, if he's not careful, he'll be stuck between a rock and a hard place as well. What exactly um, did William Clark and Nicholas Walvin, including their, del their Indian delegations, arrive to Washington, D.C.? William Clark arrived on August 1st. That is pretty much, folks, okay, June 18th, 1812 is when Madison and the Congress declared war. So that's roughly about um, just a little over six weeks after Madison had declared, officially declared, the Congress officially declared war. Baldwin arrived in mid-August. The purpose of coming to Washington was to attend a meeting, or, or what we call a gathering, held by President Madison. <clears throat> However, prior to arriving into Washington, Pre President Madison, that is prior to William Clark's and Nicholas Walvin and their Indian delegations arriving into Washington, President Madison himself was unaware that come late August that forces, that is American forces on Mackinac Island, had surrendered to the British and the Indians. President Madison now is in for a rude awakening, folks. The war has not started off on the right foot. President Madison has advised William Clark 
that the government still faced problems with regards to providing metals for Indians. Walvin himself returns westward, but he is forced to stay in St. Louis, as a return to Prairie du Chien wasn't safe. He stays in St. Louis until the start of 1814. So, yes, it was one thing, folks, for Baldwin and William Clark to come back to Washington, which, you know, they did the right thing. The problem now is that they have a com commander-in-chief who, um, who still cannot make promises. That is, promises to Indian to the Indian delegations that not only had arrived, but to other Indian nations along the western frontier whom they thought would be their allies. So really now, the United States is in a bad place. We've just surrendered one fort, and we'll talk more about that in the next podcast. But the future right now doesn't look good. America's second war for independence has not started off well. And now we face an even more grimmer future, not knowing where our relations will stand with the Indian nations along the western frontier. Some may side with us, but it could be fair to say that a majority will side with the British. When I'm back on the air again next with you all, we will discuss more about um, Robert Dixon because that is a story to tell right there onto itself. And we learned a lot also about uh, with Tecumseh earlier, but we will learn more about Tecumseh in another podcast um, down the road in the not-so-distant uh, uh, future. Thank you again for listening, as always. I look forward to being back on the air again with all of you. Thank you, as always, for listening to the podcasts. I have no doubts that all of you have found them uh, educational, regardless of the subject that's been uh, discussed. But continue to listen. Continue to um, learn about um, the stories that have been forgotten. Continue to learn about the stories that you probably didn't learn hardly anything about from high school days or, you know, or maybe in college. I don't mean that the wrong way, but but just know that there are plenty of other stories out there that uh, are waiting to be told. And this is one of them right now that we're learning about. Thank you again, and uh, as always, stay safe. Take care.